Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and works of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, coordinator for faculty programs. In this episode, communication specialist Clay interviews Zia Haider Rahman, author of the highly acclaimed 2014 novel, In the Light of What We Know. Rahman delivered the 2018 Mary Stevens Reckford Memorial Lecture in European Studies on February 22nd. The lecture, entitled Brexit, The Reckoning, examines the political, economic, racial, and social implications of Great Britain's decision to leave the European Union. Rahman is a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard University. He graduated from Oxford and also studied at Cambridge and Yale. He worked as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs before practicing as a corporate lawyer and then an international human rights lawyer. He has also worked as an anti-corruption activist. in finance and law, what inspired you to write? I, I've been writing, before I acquired a background in finance and law, I've been writing since I was a boy. And I suppose the first thing I ever published was in a college magazine. So writing isn't something I've done recently. Publishing is something that happened recently. Writing I've done because, because I love the process. And through a peculiar set of circumstances, this, this book, or the first chapter of this book, fell into the hands of a literary agent. And, um, and, and that's how it really came into being as a published book. So was it your, when you initially wrote that chapter, was your intention to write a book at all, or was it an essay? Or was no, it was to write a book, but, um, but I, and I have a, sort of various manuscripts tucked away in you know, the bottom drawer, like many people um, but for me, the rewards of writing, I've always known that the, the rewards are in the process. I do other things for the process more than the product, even though products are uh, necessary consequences of the process. So, for instance, I, I like to renovate bathrooms. <laughs> I like to remodel bathrooms um, extensively, you know, strip them out. And, and I've done quite a few of those over the years. I think, I, I think I, I, it's only quite recently that I realized why I like doing them, or I think I've realized why. I like doing that a friend of mine pointed it out, and that it's because I never had a bathroom when I first arrived in the UK. We didn't have a bathroom. We used to go to these public baths once a week. We, we lived, we were squatters. Mm-hmm. And so I think I have this attachment to bathrooms. Now, this is a bit of a digression. But the point is that there are many things I like doing, and once they're done, I mean, this novel, when once I finished it, I cried, mm. and uh, I felt desolated. And that was because the thing that had shaped my, 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 my days was finished. So I've always been very much about process, uh, keeping myself distracted. One of the things that I love about your novel is how these digressions mm. you talk about are the means in which the story is told or aspects of the story or character development. Tell me a little bit about that, how, how you come to that. Is that just the way that you express yourself? or? Yeah. Well, the digressions are supposed to illuminate. They appear to be digressions, but as you get into them, you see that actually they relate. Um, um, so, so they're not... You know, if they were irrelevant, if they were apropos de rien, then you know you'd throw the book away. But uh, but because they speak to 
each digression speaks to what came before. I think, I mean, the hope is that they build. So, and it is the way I think. The other thing is, I think metaphorically, I, I, uh, I think I, I see similarities, and um, which is, after all, what a metaphor is. Metaphor A is a metaphor for B if it is similar to B in some relevant respect. And, 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 and that, that's, that, that, I think I owe that to uh, my mathematical training. Mathematics is all about that. It's, it's all about how to think about one thing in terms of another, especially another that you already know how to think about. And if you can show that the two things are simpler in some way, then that's a, a way into thinking about the first thing. And so, so that's, that's really at the heart of, of, of those apparent digressions. So, for instance, I might go off and talk about map projections or, um, and liken map projections to translation of poetry, and you see similarities there. But then when you push that further, you begin to see that that's, that's really an introduction to this idea of how things are similar. You begin to see that how we view the world depends on our translations, our map projections, and everything is very much contingent. That said, when you're telling a story, you, you, you sort of can't forget that you're also just telling a story. <laughs> That's right. In your writing process, what do you find to be your greatest challenge? That's a good one. Uh, it's a good question. I, I get bored if there aren't, first of all, if there aren't any challenges. So I remember having a conversation with, with a well-known author who was having some, and since I'm going to say this, I probably shouldn't name the author, but uh, <laughs> since, uh, yeah, yeah, who said that she was having... Um, was having a writer's block and she, 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 was trying, she was struggling with that. And, and she looked at me and I said, well, you know, I'm not sure. Either I've never had writer's block or I've had it every day. <laughs> and, um, and it's because it's without problems, it's quite boring. And problems, you know, the fact that there is a problem itself tells you something. It tells you if you're struggling with something, you can ask, why am I struggling with this? In fact, there were places in the novel where there was, there was one place in particular where I, I struggled a lot, and, and it was interesting. It was um, In order to overcome it, I sort of had to look into myself and say, why was I struggling here? To answer your question, what do I find most challenging? I'm not sure... I can answer that. They, everything seems equally challenging. I mean, if you mean does setting scene or dialogue or that sort of thing, everything seems challenging. There are always questions in my mind about you know, to what extent can we divine the minds of others, even if they're fictional. And the, that that is something that does trouble me. In fact, it troubles me... When it comes to writing third person, in particular, it troubles me. It's a sort of, um, there's a question about who the author is. What is the author, what is the, the narrator of a, of a third person novel? What is the consciousness there? What legitimacy do they have? Whereas first person always comes with unreliability, in my view. Um, and that feels safer. It feels uh, more reliable because we know that it's flawed. Right, uh, whereas there is a certain degree of deception in third person, I think. It doesn't mean to say that one shouldn't write in third person, but that's something I do struggle with. Who are the authors that you love 
there's a wide range of authors. Um, I, I'm, I'm rather fond of a German-born, I suppose British, he lived in Britain for quite a while, author called uh, W.G. Sebald. I rather like Philip Ross for all his flaws. So it's all, it's a, it's an, it feels like a slightly invidious question because as you <laughs> enumerate the authors, you, you know that the listener is building a picture... <laughs> and <laughs> and then, but then you know that actually, you know, each uh, what you want to do, of course, is list uh, twenty authors all at once. But you right. can't do that. <laughs> I tend to like authors that engage questions, engage difficult questions, not necessarily questions about the big wide world, but you know, questions about the human heart. But they have to engage some or other important question. We are talking before your lecture Mm. uh, tonight entitled Brexit, The Reckoning. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about that title and what Mm. you what you'll be covering for those who will not be at the lecture or listening to this afterwards? The title is obviously a slightly mischievous one. (laughs) um, Yes. But but that's what Brexit, you know, this moment, feels very much like a reckoning. Something has happened in Britain that has already had had huge consequence. And uh, even before we get to economic consequences, there are huge social ramifications that are playing out right now. The Brexit decision has taken pretty much everyone by Surprise! I think even many of those who campaigned for leave uh, didn't expect to win. And the country is now at a very critical moment. Uh, we're speaking in, in at, at the end of February 2018. And the markets, the financial markets, are utterly uncertain about what's going to happen next week, in two weeks' time. The cabinet, the government has yet to form a coherent view. Within the cabinet itself, there is a division of opinion in a number of different ways as to how to proceed. So uh, this is a period of great confusion, but nevertheless, certain things seem to be very clear as a result of that decision and in the light of the extraordinary acrimony that there now is between leavers and remainers. In, this, in, in, in the UK. That acrimony actually speaks to the fact that this decision goes, or this choice went to the very sense of identity of these two groups of people. Nothing else really explains why so much acrimony. And, and that, that interests me. That interests me because suddenly I feel closer to Britain than I ever did. I feel I've long felt very alienated from Britain. But suddenly, uh, over the last 20 months, so not so suddenly, but gradually over the last 20 months, I find myself much more tender, feeling much more tender towards the country. Because it's now apparent that the idea that there was this monolithic, unified, British, white, native identity, and that idea that was promoted really uh, after 9-11 for a decade and a half... Uh, an idea that non-native people had to integrate into that notion of identity. That idea has been put paid by the acrimony 
It's not so much the decision, but by the acrimony. The aftermath of Brexit has made plain that there is actually a multiplicity of identities, even among native white Britons, and that I have more in common with an educated, white, professional Briton than he or she does with many of her uh, fellow countrymen, native fellow countrymen. So, so, and they've understood that as well. That is the other thing. There's been an, an awakening in Britain, principally on the side of, of Remain, uh, that their country consists of people who are very alien. There are many Britons, white native Britons, who are quite alien from them. What about class? Yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot about class. Um, in fact, my novel is... Is, is really really does focus on class a lot. There is a, a narrative, of course, that the election of Donald Trump and the Brexit vote are, you know, that they reflect uh, class grievances of some kind. And, you know, I, I don't want to diminish that, which always sounds like a preface to diminishing it, because <laughs> it sounds like I'm going to say, but... Um, I don't want to diminish that. I do want to say that these things are always entangled. Nothing is divisible from, you know, all phenomena, all observed phenomena sit at the junction of several causes. That's, that's, that's life, that's science, that's, uh, that's the world. In discussing race, we're not denying the role of class, and we should not think that by talking about class, we've understood that race is not relevant. And very often you see that in the conversations that people have. And, that's, and that, that, I think, it reflects a human tendency towards monocausality. We're very, we, we struggle. I mean, in, in a sense, it's this linear problem that you asked me earlier on, which books do you like and which authors? And I reflected that there's a problem because language goes one from one word to the next, and I right. can't do several things at the same time. So, you know, I can't enumerate several authors at the same time. But nature does that. Nature does precisely that. The material world does precisely that. Things happen simultaneously. So we, we have to catch ourselves and, and, and stop ourselves when we're inclined to think of one and not the other. So to, to, to talk about class specifically, clearly there is a problem of income in inequality. Um, income inequality in the, uh, in the U.S. Is, sorry, uh, real wages have stagnated for 25 years, for most of uh, the last 30 years in the U.S., and the same is true for much of the rest of the developed world. And a few years ago, you'll remember, you know, we, we were talking quite a bit about income inequality. Thomas Piketty's book came out, and many others were talking about it too. And yet, we, you know, it never seemed to gain quite the traction uh, in policy. And we, we know why that's the case. It's because the powers that be have no interest in addressing income inequality. So um, our politics in, the, politics in the U.S. is hostage to big business. It's hostage to money. And, and, and that prevents... I mean, don't for a moment imagine that 
Donald Trump is going to address income inequality. It's just impossible. In fact, you know, <laughs> that may be a demonstration of, of how little power he actually has. Even the president of the United even a billionaire president of the United States can't do anything about that, right. it seems to me. I don't want to sound too despondent, but... <laughs> but uh, yeah. Given that when you talked about authors that you love, you enjoy those that mm. ask questions, are there questions, especially around Brexit, that you feel aren't being asked, that we need to, we need to think about more? I have a very, it may seem very narrow concern, but I have a fear. It is a fear that is born of something I read in a newspaper. Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, remarked just before the Brexit vote, he remarked, that don't for a moment think that if the uh, UK leaves the EU and Brexit proves to be a disaster that the British people will regret their decision, leavers won't regret because human beings don't do regret. Uh, what they do is look for scapegoats. Hmm. And my... My, my, my fear is that not enough attention is being paid to that possibility. Not only do we not do regret, you know, if, if you think about it, if we don't do regret, we're even more unlikely to think about preparing ourselves for the eventuality in which we don't do regret. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's, it would be very difficult for politicians right now to talk about, you know, well, look, guys, uh, we're not going to look for scapegoats if things go pear-shaped. <laughs> so, 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 so that, that worries me a little bit, or a lot, actually. Actually, if I'm honest, that terrifies me because all the ingredients will be in place for doing something terrible. And Europe has a very... You know, Europe is extremely skillful at doing terrible things to large numbers of people that it regards as different. We ask everyone that we yeah. interview, what is a book that changed your life? That's a great question. I, you know, I, do you know what it might be? It might be... It might be a book called What is Mathematics by a mathematician called Courant. I'm not even sure how his name is spelled, uh, pronounced, but um, it was given to me. It was a gift when I was a boy, and I think I only understood half of it, uh, but the other half was magical, and it inspired me. And... Uh, in college, I studied mathematics. And I still think mathematics is the most beautiful thing in the world. I still think it is the pinnacle of human achievement. It's, I left it two decades ago. And I don't, I'm not someone who has regrets, but I have a nostalgia about mathematics. If I ever have children, I know that I will always have N plus one children because <laughs> my other child will be mathematics. <laughs>
I will say that as someone who does not consider themselves well-versed in mathematics, I really enjoyed seeing mathematics through your characters in your book and the way that it was described. And it, it made me more curious than I've ever been on in mathematics. So thank you for that. I've got to remember that line. <laughs> in plus one choice. It works on two levels. Yes, it really does. It's really Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.